Okay, our scripture reading is Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 38. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we, again, thank you for this time. God, we thank you for um, uh, this time of worship that we've had with each other. Um, God, we thank you for, um, God, all the different people that you uh, that you bless with ability um, to sing and to play instruments. God, we thank you for um, uh, people who are willing um, to serve and, and to step up um, into those places. Um, God, we ask a special prayer um, this evening um, for our friends, um, Tanner and Jamie. Um, also for Cody, um, as as they are are talking, and and within the case of Tanner and Jamie, um, have taken a position. Um uh, at Mount Olive Baptist Church, God, we pray for that congregation, God, uh, a, a church um, in in the, a community there in in South Knoxville. Um, um, God, we ask for a gospel presence. Um, we ask for gospel multiplication. Um, we ask that you would use that church to reach the people in that community and that there would be um, a revival and an awakening uh, in that community through that church. Um, God, we, we pray that uh, for the pastor and staff um, that are there, that they would um, each week um, speak the word of God faithfully, that they would portray um, uh, the gospel clearly um, to the congregation, to the community, and that all things that you would, that you would grow them, um, that you would grow them not only in numbers, um, but that you would grow them in, in depth of the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ. Um, God, we pray that for every gospel 
community and gospel church in Blount County. Um, we ask that any church um, that is that is teaching your word and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ um, with the people um, that have been entrusted to them, God, that you would work through those, that you would draw people close to yourself through them, that people would get involved and connected to churches, that they would receive the discipleship and the accountability, that they would be trained up in service um, so that they could turn around and go out and be disciple makers, be people who are um, witnessing uh, and, and sharing the love of Jesus in each of their own unique contexts, in their work, in their hobbies, uh, in the places that um, perhaps nobody else has access to um, the way they do. God, we ask for your gospel to go forth in this community. We know that that is a task um, that cannot be accomplished without uh, the tilling, softening, melting work of the Holy Spirit in people's hearts and lives. And so we pray that you would go before us, that you would prepare hearts um, for the gospel, um, and that as the seed of the gospel is is. Uh, planted, um, that you would cause it to grow and prosper, and that it would reap a harvest 20, 50, 100 times what was sown. God, we thank you. We praise you. Um, we ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so if you've got your Bible, I hope you're already there, look to Luke chapter 2. And we are going to be looking at a section um, that, that kind of makes a turn in the things that we've been talking about. So probably a lot of you are familiar uh, with Paul Harvey, right? And so Paul Harvey was, was a radio personality, and he, and he used to have this... Uh, this this program that was called the rest of the story, right? And so he would sort of tell you this sort of cryptic, nebulous story where he didn't tell you the names or something, but tell you what would go on. And then all of a sudden at the end, he would reveal to you who the person was that he was talking about or what the secret thing about the story was that you hadn't heard or the part of the story that you had never heard that of a well-known story, and he would kind of end it that way. And, and I love Paul Harvey. I remember growing up and my dad listening to Paul Harvey and stuff like that, and, and I always enjoyed it. And there's another guy now named Mike Rowe. Is anybody familiar with Mike Rowe? He's got a, uh, I wrote it down here, he's got a, a, a podcast called The Way I Heard It. And it's basically the same kind of thing, right? He'll sort of tell a story and, and, and sort of at the end of it reveal who it is or what it is or the event that he's, he's really talking about. Or sometimes he'll tell a story and kind of show you a side of it that you had not known before. Maybe you knew um, uh, an event was a big, well-known event out in, you know, the culture or in history, except there was a... There was a secret side to it, something that you didn't know about it that was going on during that time. Um, th- this passage has sort of, I, I was thinking about those ideas. I was listening to Mike Rowe this week, and it kind of, I thought about that idea, um, because it's sort of like what's going on in this passage a little bit, okay? What we notice about this passage is that Luke sort of shifts our focus, not away from Jesus. We're staying focused on Jesus, but he's showing us the other side of the story a little bit, right? So we've been talking about all this good and blessing that is coming with the coming of Jesus Christ, right? Um, and, and in this passage, um, we sort of see a different side of it, okay? Um, the Gospel of Matthew does this in a different way. The Gospel of Matthew, which and that we're going to talk about, we're going to jump out of Luke next week and jump into Matthew for just one week. Um, the Gospel of Matthew does this through the story about the killing of 
the baby boys um, by Herod after the birth of Jesus, right? And so it shows you a sort of a, a dark underbelly to the story that Jesus' coming is not all angels singing and people rejoicing and shepherds and, and, and magi coming in wonder, that there is another side to this story. And so Matthew uses that uh, that story, that, that the, the killing of the children, Luke is going to kind of use this as his means to do that. And so you'll see what um, I kind of am talking about as we go. But he does this in a specific way. He does it through showing us, setting us up through three rituals, and then showing us two prophets, and then showing us this one destiny that Jesus Christ has. Okay, so let's kind of look at the text and kind of dig in and, and see what we've got. Okay, so start out with this idea. We've got these three rituals that, that happen. Okay, you may or may not have noticed this, but verses 21, 22, and 23 are listing out three completely different rituals. They're talking about three completely different things that were going on, ritual observances in the life of Jesus Christ and the people in his family, okay? So the first one in verse 21 is, is the ritual of circumcision, okay? And so um, it, every Jewish boy on the eighth day was taken and he would undergo this procedure, um, and that would also be the time when he was given his name officially, Typically, okay, um, and that circumcision was a marker, right? It was something that marked uh, that boy off as a member of the Jewish community, okay. And so that's the first thing that we see in this passage is it's talking about that picture of circumcision in, in verse twenty-one. But that, but then it goes on beyond that because it says it talks about it in the next passage. Um, something that is is a different ceremony and that has to do with Mary's purification after her childbirth okay so what we notice is this uh, when you look at the Levitical law um, in the Old Testament you you find that when a woman would have a child she would be ritually impure for seven days all right and so what that would mean was this is that um, after a childbirth, for seven days, anything she came in contact with, persons or items, would then also be ritually impure. Okay? So it's almost like she was contagious, you could say, with her impurity. That's not exactly the right idea, but, it, but it's sort of like that, okay? Um, and, and, and the reason why that was, um, the reason why she was considered ritually impure, it has nothing to do with sin, okay? That's one thing that we kind of confuse sometimes. Like we think you're saying, oh, she's ritually impure because she has done something sinful. No, that's not what we're talking about. It's not an issue of sin. It's a different picture that's going on. And it mainly has to do with blood, it has to do with the blood that comes along with the process of childbearing. Because any time blood is shed in the scriptures, blood is seen as something sacred um, in the scriptures. Okay, And so anything where blood is involved, um, there, is a, there is a defilement that takes place in that. Right. So we can look at things like the shedding of blood. Obviously, in a story like um, the story of Cain and Abel, right? there's a defilement that goes on there. Obviously, there's a sin element to there. Um, but, but the blood is, is the central peace. The Bible talks about there being life in the blood, and therefore you're not supposed to do things like eat an animal that still has its blood in it. Menstruation causes impurity. Contacting blood through an injury or something. Warriors going into battle would all be ritually impure because they had come in contact with blood. And obviously, during, a, during childbirth, there's going to be a certain amount of blood, and so therefore that woman was ritually impure for seven days. Then at the end of that seven days, it, it works out because at the end of that seven days, she is made, uh, she is cleansed from that impurity. And then on the next day, 
is the eighth day, which then she goes to her son's circumcision, right? So she is made ritually clean again, just in time for her to go to her, her male child circumcision. But there are two, actually, purifications that women go through. There's a seven-day purification, and then there's a 40-day purification, okay? And so what happens is at the end of the seven days, you're no longer contagious. And again, that's a, that's a wrong word, right? It's, it doesn't, um, it's, it, it's not actually anything being um, caught. But, but that's the kind of imagery that we have. Um, you're, you're, after seven days, you are cleansed of that contagious ritual impurity. And notice, too, maybe the case is, is that God did this for some practical reasons, too. It was probably very helpful for that new mother to have seven days where she didn't have to do anything, right? She, she couldn't go and make food. She couldn't go and be around people. She didn't have to engage and do the normal things that wives and mothers and, and female heads of household would have to do. Um, she could take time to rest and to bond with her with her newborn child, right? So there were practical aspects that made this a wise um, thing. But after that seven days, then she entered into another stage of her impurity. And she was no longer contagious, but she still couldn't, she could be around normal things at that point. She could be around common things and common people, but she still couldn't have anything to do with holy things, things set apart for the worship of God. So for example, she could not go to the temple during that time and be a part of a sacrifice or, or go and, and do anything involved with the temple. She had to wait another 33 days for a total of 40 days before she could go to the temple again, okay? And so at that point, you would go to, at that 40 days, you would go to Jerusalem, you would go to the temple, and you would make a sacrifice for the new mother's ritual purity, okay? And then after that point, she would be back to normal. She would be back and, and, and could do and participate in the community of faith however she wanted to. Okay, that's what we see in the second verse, chapter or verse 22. Okay, but then we get to verse 23, and there is another ritual that is being referenced there. Okay, and that is the ritual of the firstborn son's redemption that we find in Exodus chapter 33. Okay, so I'll, I'll read that real quick. So in Exodus 33, it's talking about this ceremony. And, and it says, what will you do when your son asks what's going on? When your child asks, why do we do that? Why do we redeem the firstborn male son of the family? And, and verse 14 says to do this. What does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. From when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animal. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontals between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Okay, so what is what is going on there? The deal is is this is that. Um, there was a redemption that had to be, had to happen for the firstborn male child of every family. And it's referencing back to the situation that happened with the last plague of the ten plagues in Egypt, right? When the firstborn sons were killed. And so every firstborn male son, you had to go to Jerusalem and offer a sacrifice symbolically to buy his life back. Because it was a picture of saying, this firstborn child's life belongs to God. And if you want him to continue to live and be your child, you have to buy his life back. 
Okay. Now, again, there would have never been a child sacrifice in terms of the worship of, of, of the Jewish people, right? They're not going to, they wouldn't say, well, I can't afford it. Well, then we're going to have to kill your child. That's not what would happen. It was symbolic. But it was a picture, right, of the fact that you owe God something, okay? So why, here's the deal. Why does he tell us about these three, three things? Why does he introduce this section mentioning these three things? Because notice something, none of these three things are mandated by the New Testament. You don't have to do any of them, okay? None of these things are practices that we have continued in the New, New Testament. Um, some of them, like circumcision, might have a cultural practice, but they don't have a religious practice for us anymore. So why does he tell us about them? Well, one, you could say, well, because it's what happened. He's just telling us what happened. Luke's the historian, right? Sure, that's true. But Luke doesn't tell us everything that happened, right? He tells us nothing about the, the murder of the babies that happened. He tells us nothing about the Magi coming. Luke is obviously at putting things in the story that he wants you to specifically know and leaving things out of the story that are, are not fitting with the narrative he's trying to tell, okay? Um, somebody might say, well, well, he's doing it to connect the gospel of Luke to the Old Testament. We already talked about that a little bit, and that's true too, okay? But I think there's a bigger reason why he is doing this. He's drawing our attention to these three ceremonies for a very specific reason. Why would he draw our attention to circumcision? Well, to put it bluntly, circumcision is not a pretty process, Okay, right. Usually people get uncomfortable even just saying the word or kind of talking about it. Um, there's blood involved. Right. And screaming typically uh, when you circumcise a, a baby. Um, there's intimacy and it's painful and it's kind of gross. And let's be honest, it's even a little bit weird. Right. Like the concept of it where you're just like, we're going to start chopping what off of who? Why? Why would we do you just chop pieces off of people? Is that what we do? Like, why would you? Why would you? It's, it's an odd thing for someone who has no context in the religious narrative of, of the Judeo-Christian world. Right. So people are like, why are you doing this? But we notice something in the scriptures very quickly. We notice that the scriptures change the language of physical circumcision, even though that continues to happen, but it starts saying this is a picture of circumcision of our hearts. Okay? It is a picture of the idea that something has to be cut off and removed from our hearts. And that thing is sin. Right? And the, and the whole picture there is that this is a process that is difficult and ugly and bloody and costly. All of that process of dealing with sin is, a, is pictured in the circumcision of the child. All right? And so he brings this idea up to our attention. Then he has this other thing, this, this postpartum purification, we could call it, right? And again, I don't want to go into a whole lot of detail, okay? But the recovery process of a woman who has just had a child can be difficult. And I can only imagine that was way worse in the first century, right? Without modern medicine, without modern hygiene and things like that, um, it was a difficult process to recover from a pregnancy. And there's an imagery there to the fact that she needs to be purified from that, not because she's done something wrong, not because she's done something sinful, but because we are broken, um, that we're kind of a mess. And there are things about us that have to be fixed even if they're not directly related to sin. There's ways that we need to be cleaned up and made right that don't even reflect on us in terms of our sin uh, and things like that. Okay, And so we're, our attention is drawn to that. And then finally, this idea, this right of redemption of the firstborn son. And it reminds us again of something. We owe God a life. 
God killed every firstborn animal and firstborn son of Egypt, and he would have killed the firstborn sons of Israel as well. They weren't excused because it didn't apply to them in some way, right? They weren't excused because they didn't owe God anything. That's not what happened. They were excused because something else died in their place, right? You know the story, that the lambs were slain and the blood was placed on the doorpost, and because those lambs had sacrificed their lives in the place of the firstborn sons, then as the as death came through the, the city or the village, it passed over the houses where a firstborn Israelite child lived, okay? And so the redemption ceremony was this continual reminder to the people that of this, you still owe me. And that sacrifice that you owe me is costly and, again, bloody. And it requires a life for a life. All right? It's in the context of these three things. So just hold those things up there. Hold the imagery of those three things in, in the background, right? It's in the context of this that all of a sudden we're introduced to these two saints, okay? And I think these saints, who are not mentioned in the other scriptures... Are, are pay, play a pivotal point too. There's a reason why Luke includes them. Because in the midst of these three ceremonies, in the, rit, in the midst of these three rit, rituals, we learn about these two saints, um, Simeon and Anna. All right? And so well, let's talk about even though Anna comes at the end of uh, the story, um, let's kind of do, let's talk about her first. So um, Anna is advanced in years, all right? She is either 84 years old or the, the, the language is kind of nebulous, or it may be that she has been a widow for 84 years, which would mean if on average, if she got married at 13, the Bible says she was widowed after seven years of marriage. That means that she was be over a hundred. She'd be somewhere in the range of 104 years old, right? So she is advanced in years. Um, and she has been worshiping there in the temple since the time of her husband's death. She had dedicated her life to the temple. She had basically become um, a temple widow, um, you could say. And so she spent all of her day praying and, and ministering there in the temple of God. Uh, doesn't tell us that she ever had any kids. Maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. We don't know that for sure. But she has given her life um, to praying and fasting and working in the temple. The Bible also says she's a prophetess. And that's another conversation for another time about what that means about the idea of, of a female prophet, right? A female prophetess. How does that play into how we understand in the scriptures about male leadership and, and male headship and all those different things like that? It's another conversation for another time. But it says that she was a prophetess. Um, and she had spent her whole life giving thanks to God, right? Um, being patient and humble in her position and her station in life and living in a way that honored um, God and met the needs of her community, right? Then we also have this story of Simeon, this other character. And again, I don't know what it is about Simeon. I get kind of weepy every time I read Simeon's story. There's something about that line where he says, y now you've allowed your servant to depart in peace because... Because he had prayed and God had said, you will live to see the Messiah come, right? You may be old, um, but, but you will not die before you see the Messiah come. Like there's something, I don't know, I don't know what it is specifically about that story that gets me, but I get a little, I get a little weepy when I read that story or when I hear somebody talking about it or in a song or something. The idea of him waiting faithfully his whole life to see something come, um, something the Lord said he would do, is a beautiful picture. Um, and again, it says uniquely in his case, we've got 
Anna is a prophetess, it says that Simeon had the Holy Spirit on him. Okay, Again, a unique thing in, in an Old Testament context. This is before Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit was given to God's people in general. And so to have the Holy Spirit on you was kind of a unique thing, at least in the way we, when we read the Scriptures. Um, so here's the question then. Why are these two people in there? Why does it mention them? Anna, you really don't learn much about her, and you only learn a little bit more about Simeon. Why are these, these two characters put in here? Um, well, obviously, a big piece of it is that we're about to hear a prophecy from the mouth of Simeon. But I think there's something else, too. These are two people for whom life has been kind of difficult in some ways. Right. Um, and yet they are two people who are who have endured faithfully. They have been patient. They have not walked away from God um, when he allowed their lives to be bitter in different ways. Um, even though it would seem that he was slow to bringing his promises to fruition, and yet they have remained faithful to him, faithful to him during difficult circumstances. These are pictures of that very kind of faithfulness, faithfulness in difficult times. Why is that important? Why would we get, be given two pictures of people who live their whole lives in not ideal situations in terms of like joy and happiness and, and, and things like that, right? Why do you have these two pictures of these people who probably life didn't turn out exactly the way they, they thought it would, okay? Well, it's because of the prophecy that, um, that Simeon gives. And I'm telling you that it sets up this other side to the coming of Jesus Christ. So verse 29. Simeon says, now, Lord, you are releasing your bond servant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. I love that phrase. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. All right. And so at first, the first part of Simeon's prophecy is a lot the kind of stuff we've already seen. Right. We've heard many of these things already. Um, Jesus is coming to save his people. Right. And not just his people, Israel, but he the scattered people who are among the nations. You know, we've heard about this peace on earth, goodwill towards men. We've heard about God visiting his people. We've even heard about this redemption that Jesus is bringing. And when we talk about redemption, we're talking about paying a cost, right? But we haven't gotten real specific about what that cost is going to look like. And that's exactly the other side that I think Luke is revealing to us in this story. Simeon also then, after that, after verse 33, gives us some new information about the coming of Jesus. Info that is kind of, at the same time, kind of cryptic, and at the same time, ominous, what he says. So starting in verse 34, it says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. All right. Now, again, there's a little bit of a crypticness to that. Right. Um, but at the same time, there's some explicit things that we read there, too. I, I think this is all coming together. What does the bloody, messy rituals have to do with all this? What is the faithful endurance, the marathon life of these two saints have to do with this? What it has to do with is the fact that Simeon says, there's a storm coming. 
There is an earthquake coming. There is an upheaval that is about to take place. And what do we notice as we go through these things, right? Each, each kind of point you can see in the prophecy. The first thing is this, is that Jesus is going to be responsible for not only the blessing and the lifting up of some people, but for the destruction of other folks. Jesus coming displaces stuff. All right? We've already talked about it. Jesus comes to humble the exalted and exalt the humble. Not everybody wants that. Right? Jesus, and this is the deal, Jesus is divisive. He is by his nature. Jesus brings upheaval. We cannot read the scriptures rightly if we don't take that into account, right? Does he come good news of great joy, peace on earth, goodwill towards men? Yes. But just like we talked about last week, that peace that he brings is for those who receive him. For those who don't receive him, there is something else that's going on. And so when we look in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus warns his disciples and he says this, Do not think that I came to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. All right, that is the reality of who Jesus is and why he has come. He is a divisive figure that is going to cause some to rise and some to fall. Number two, it says he is a sign that will be opposed. And so again, Matthew goes on and says this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. All right. Jesus says my coming is going to be opposed. There are going to be lots of people who don't want me here. There's a, there's a famous Gandhi quote, um, and you guys probably have all heard it before, where Gandhi basically said something to the effect of, when I saw your Jesus, I really liked him, but when I saw your Christians, I didn't like them, right? I like your Jesus better than I do your, your, your Christians, okay? Um, it is certainly the case that we do things all the time to dishonor the name of Christ, right? To bring disrepute on the character and, and mission and church of Jesus Christ. That is the case, Okay. But we can read too much into a quote like that from Gandhi. To think that the problem with Jesus is only the church is, is a wrong understanding of who Jesus is, okay? Remember this. When Jesus himself was on earth, walking around, talking to people, loving them, sharing with them, speaking the truth to them, they hated him, they reviled him, and they crucified him. Okay. Again, we get this picture, especially in, in the culture sometimes, that says, man, if we could just see Jesus clearly, then everybody would be good, right? We would just flock to Jesus. And here's the truth. That's not what we see in the Bible. Jesus says, I'm a sign that is opposed. When I come, there's lots of people who don't like me and don't want me here. People hated Jesus when he presented himself. That's part of the, the dark side of the coming of Christ, the reality of, of his coming. And not just that, but this. The next thing that it says is that that prophecy about Mary herself, about a sword will pierce her own soul. What does that mean? Certainly it's referring to the pain of watching her son be rejected and killed. I think that's part of it. 
But it's not just that, I don't think, because I think the fact is, is that because it's sandwiched between these two other passages about people either receiving or rejecting Jesus Christ, it's talking about her life, too. Because remember this, Mary's not, we, we, we are not, we do not esteem Mary the way, say, the Catholic Church does. Um, Mary's just a lady, okay? A, a, a godly, faithful lady, um, but she's just a normal person. You know what that means? It means she had to turn to Jesus in faith and repentance, too. She had to count, count the cost of saying, my son is the Messiah, the one who was to come, and trusting in him is what will save us. She had to make those kind of decisions, too. She isn't any different from you or I. She had to acknowledge Jesus as Savior. And just like us, it costs her something. It costs her friends, probably. It costs her relationships. It costs her opportunities. We have lived in this country in unprecedented times of peace and acceptance when it comes to the faith, right? Most of the world, through most of history, has not dealt with that, have not been in that situation. The reality is, is that the coming of Christ costs something. And it is going to cost those who have trusted him something. And then the last thing is, is this idea where it says, to the end that the thoughts for many hearts will be revealed, right? Jesus is either the rock that you anchor your life to, or he is the rock that you crash your ship into. He, he will be one, of, one or the other. He is either the thing that wrecks you, or he is the thing um, that keeps you safe, but either way, he is the standard, and your reaction to him reveals your heart. So if you come to Jesus Christ and you say, I don't like it and I don't want it, then that shows where you're at. You can't sit there and give us a line about, no, 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 I love God and I believe in these other things and I want to be a good person and all this stuff like that. It's all nonsense. If you come to Jesus Christ and you say, I reject him, then you've rejected all of it. But if you come to Jesus Christ and say, he has this good news of great joy, and I want to receive that, then that good news is good news for that person. To the person who has recognized their sin and their situation, to the person who has recognized the bloody, ugly, messy necessity of the coming and death of Jesus Christ to atone for our sins, for that person, salvation is sweet. For that person, Jesus is, is glorious. For that person, the message of the gospel is good news. But for the person who is perishing, the person who is turned away from Jesus Christ, who will not be saved, the message of the gospel isn't good news. It's foolishness. It's a stumbling block. And it is something to be opposed and to be rejected and to be pushed away. That's the reality of the gospel. And that is the cost of following Jesus Christ. And again, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be chicken little, right? And just get up here and be like, man, the sky's falling. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket and, and everything's getting worse or whatever. Because the reality is, is man, we still have it way better than most places in the world, right? I guarantee it was a harder day being a Christian in Iran today than it, than it is in America, no matter what has happened, right? Um, and probably, again, probably will be for a long time, right? I can't imagine that it would be as bad as it is in certain places in the world. And yet, I do think this. 
we're certainly not trending towards holiness, right? We are not trending towards a culture that is embracing the gospel in Jesus Christ. We are trending away from that. Could that change? Sure it could. Could God bring revival? I pray he does. But if things keep on going the way they are, it is only going to be more costly, more difficult to follow Jesus Christ in this world. If we take the tack that Western Europe has done, if we follow the trajectory that Canada has done, then in relatively short amount of time, we are going to be living in a not only secular culture, but we are going to be living in a culture that is antagonistic to Jesus Christ and the gospel. And what I'm telling you is that's exactly what we should expect. And that's why Luke tells us this. He says the gospel is good news, guys. It is the message of peace and salvation for those who hear it. But recognize for everybody that doesn't hear it, it is a message to be opposed and to be pushed down and to be quieted and be isolated. And so, again, that's kind of a a weird way to end a passage because you're like, oh, man, that's really dark, Ash. Thanks. I was looking for some encouragement. I was going to walk out of here and be all, like, pumped up and happy for the week. And now I'm just sort of like, oh, okay. But, But recognize all these things are held together by the witness that we have in the Gospels, right? We, we, when we pretend like suffering and difficulty and opposition is not part of the gospel Christian life, then we fool ourselves. We are, we are believing, honestly, in a false gospel. I'm not saying you're a false believer. I'm just saying that you haven't read the whole story. You haven't looked at the whole thing. We have to acknowledge and we have to recognize that that's the way. And so you know what? When you are talking to a friend or a loved one or a family member and they are antagonistic to the gospel... There shouldn't be this thing in you that kind of goes, well, I can't believe this. I figured if I just showed them Jesus, that they would just love him and embrace him and everything would be fine. That's not what happens. Outside of the, the amazing, special grace of God working in their lives that turns dead hearts into living hearts that will receive him. And so that's what we should be praying, okay? We should be praying on all levels of this thing, right? We should be praying that God would move in uncommon ways, right? That God would break through the, the, the inherent rejection that, that the world has for Jesus Christ. Because that's where our hearts are. Our hearts are dead, right? They are rock hard when it comes to the gospel coming into them, okay? We should pray that God would soften hearts, open hearts to the message of the gospel. We should also pray that as things get more difficult, that we would continue to be faithful. And again, I'm not saying be jerks, okay? There's lots of times where the church is jerks, and then people don't like us, and then we go, well, it's because you don't love Jesus. No, it's because you're a jerk, right? If you're acting like a jerk, then then that's not what we're talking about. But if we are being honest about what the Scriptures say, and we are pre- presenting Jesus rightly, and living our lives in a way that is is in line with the Scriptures, and people still reject, then we have to say, yeah, that makes sense. Because people hated the Savior, and they're going to hate those who follow him. They rejected what he said when he came and taught in the flesh, and they're going to reject what he is teaching in people's lives through the working of the Holy Spirit now. That's what we should expect. So pray that we would remain faithful as a church, not just this church, but a church global, a church universal, um, that, that we would continue to contend for the faith, to, to share and to evangelize and put the goodness of Jesus Christ in front of people and pray that the Holy Spirit would, would move hearts and change lives and draw people into his kingdom. Amen?
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray that prayer now. Um, just take a time, a, a moment of reflection and, and kind of to, to pray some of those things. And then I'll close this and, and uh, uh, the music team will come back up and, and, and lead us out in worship. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we do not pray for conflict. Uh, we do not pray in, in a cavalier, um, bragging kind of way that we want situations in which um, our faith is, is violently opposed or, or costly even to the points of our lives and livelihoods, God. We, are, uh, we're not, we don't have a martyr complex. Uh, we want to live lives of peace. Um, and security. Uh, we want to live lives of, of freedom to worship you. Um, God, I like the idea of there being a church on every corner and a Bible in every household. Um, but God, if it is your will that you would cleanse your church by allowing difficulty and persecution to come, then God, I pray that you would help us to remain faithful. That in everything that we would hold forth Jesus Christ and the gospel that we would, even when we are opposed, that we would continue to love and to serve and to sacrifice for those, not only those who are our neighbors and who are not believers, but God, as you have told us, even our enemies to go the extra mile, to serve even those who hate us. God, I pray that you would give us that strength uh, that level of faith, that level of commitment. And God, that you would let us recognize the cost that is before us as followers of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that none of these things would come to pass. I pray that you would bring revival to our community and to our country and to the world. But God, we trust in you in all things and know that you are sovereign and good and that all your plans are right. So we just ask that in whatever comes, that your will would be done and that you would care for us and keep us close to yourself and help us to remain faithful. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.